Sean Little is going to speak this morning. Sean and his wife, Erin, are here visiting with us today, and uh, I'm just delighted to give you the opportunity to introduce, uh, to meet Sean, and if you would, please welcome Sean Little. Hey, thank you guys. Let me get situated here, anchor in a little bit. How y'all doing this morning? Doing well? Um... It's good to be with you. Uh, as the video said, as Jeff said, uh, my name is Sean Little. Um, and coming to church is an interesting thing, and I learned this uh, the older that I get, um, having not, maybe you picked it up in that video, having not grown up in the church, um, I'm, I'm sort of learning it more and more as I get older, and my wife and I have been members at a church uh, for a couple years now. It's kind of like coming into someone's house right? Uh, and this is a family. Um, so I realized that I'm a guest, uh, not only am I a guest uh, speaker, but again, it's kind of a family, kind of a house, and I want to be respectful of that. And I think uh, one of my favorite things about hosting people is hearing a little bit about their story when they come over, right? <laughs> Anyone who's been to my house knows that. I ask a million questions, um, but that's, that's for a later time. Hopefully, I'll come over and get grilled like that. Um, so, uh, all of that said to say, I just want to thank you for having me. Um, I want to be respectful and sensitive as a guest in your family, in your house. Uh, and you'll have to let me know how I do. Uh, and hopefully, you don't kick me out. So, like the, like the video mentioned, I'm from Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati means a great deal to me. It, it did for uh, a long time. Um, and my wife and I moved here uh, to Evansville in 2009. Uh, and a lot of times I get the question, well, why Evansville? Uh, and my answer, my response to that uh, really fluctuated for, for many years. Um, but the bottom line is that a beautiful woman has immense, immense power. Uh, so I followed my wife back home. Uh, so we've been here since 2009. And our relationship with Evansville has really been love and hate. Uh, for the past few years, thankfully, uh, it's been all love. We got nothing but love for Evansville. And we're thankful to be here. And I think a part of that is because love is a choice. Uh, love is a commitment. I hear people talk all the time. I'm thinking about one young lady specifically, and uh, she says, I want to fall in love, and I want to meet the man of my dreams. Um, and I think there's something romantic and possibly true about this notion of falling in love and the only one for me, uh, but I think it's really unhelpful to think that love is going to come sweep us off of our feet. Um, and if it does, if we get swept off of our feet, at some point we're going to fall on to our butts uh, love is a choice. It's a commitment. And that's what we've done with the city of Evansville. Uh, we, we've chose to, to be here and to love this place. Um, and it's just interesting to me that whatever you set your affection upon, when you choose to love something, you end up loving it more. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about that in uh, Mere Christianity. He says, if you want to love something, if you want to love someone, love it. And your feelings will follow. Uh, so we love Evansville. The city of Evansville uh, means a great deal to us. In fact, we're selling our house over on the east side. We love our house. It's awesome. We just had a surprise birthday party for my wife uh, a couple of weeks ago. And there's pieces of tape all over the ceiling in our house. Uh, but it's kind of romantic. And we'll sit on that couch and we'll be like, oh man, we're going to miss this house. Because uh, we have a lot of memories there. But we're selling it because we bought a duplex um, on Cherry Street just a couple of 
blocks away. And that intentional is very, I'm sorry, that, that move is very intentional. Us selling that house and moving downtown is intentional. We're trying to centralize our lives around our work and around our ministry. Um, I think there's something to living in the neighborhood where you do your life. Uh, there, there's a lot of maybe unintentional sort of reverberation in that because if you walk to work, um, you see people, right? So there's a rhythm about living where you work and living where you do ministry. Um, and that's what we're trying to centralize in on by, by living down here. Um, so my wife opened up a new business uh, on Main Street. It's a cold press juice business called Sunshine Juice Co. Uh, if you don't know what it is or if you haven't visited, come on down. 204 Main Street. Stuff is the bomb. Uh, and... For the past four years, uh, I've been directing a, an outreach program at Impact Ministries. It's called Hip Hop 101. So I've been developing it and directing it. And we use the tool uh, of a recording studio and a production studio to, to reach into Evansville's urban and impoverished, primarily South Side neighborhood. And it's awesome uh, because you get young men just like myself who grew up and didn't really have much access to stuff. Uh, so they'll hop on board with the program. And through having that tool, having those tools, people will kind of do whatever you ask for them to do. Uh, so what I ask because I offer those tools is that they think about their identity. They think about who they are. And you picked it up in the video, and if you hear me talk, that's kind of one of the themes that I talk about a lot. Um, our identities are, are so pivotal to who we are, how we understand ourselves, how we understand relationships, how we operate with other people. But I begin asking them the question, what does your community and your context say or think about your identity? What does uh, American, urban, impoverished communities, what do they say about who you are, about your identity, about what makes you valuable, what makes you worthwhile, what makes you lovely, what makes you a man or a woman. And then we sort of look at culture um, and, the, and the culture that I live in, and I think all of us live in cultures, whether we're aware of it or not, uh, the culture that I live in is, is hip hop. Um, so, so you guys might pick up on some of that, whether it's how I use my hands or the rhythm to how I talk. I'm 30 years old and I've been rapping for 15 years. And that's really just an expression of the fact that home is this place called hip hop. So it's really helpful to me when people kind of vibe back and forth. So you guys say, mm-hmm, yeah, right. Give me head nods or something. Okay. Yeah, it helps me out as a, as a hip hop dude. Um, but the point is, is after we look at context and community, we look at culture. What does hip hop say about those same things? What does hip hop say about your identity? What makes you valuable or wonderful or good or worthwhile? Uh, and those questions aren't often asked. We don't ask ourselves, what does our culture expect from us or what does it dictate for us? A lot of times we just bow a knee to it unknowingly. Uh, but when you ask a question and push for an answer and when you say, hey, you can't record any more raps until you answer this question in paragraph form on paper, then you'll get answers because uh, they want to rap. And then after asking about community and context and culture and what do those things say about identity and value and worth and purpose and who you are and what makes you wonderful, I introduce a new narrative, an alternative narrative, which is the narrative of the scriptures. Uh, and if you are a Christian this morning, 
If you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you have eternal life, I would assume that something like that either has happened in your past or it happens sort of continually. What does the scripture say about who I am? I'm believing this way or I'm thinking this way or I'm acting this way or I'm bowing a knee or giving a head nod to a culture or a people group and they tell me who I should be but I look in the book and it says something else and that's a wonderful moment to be able to invite these young men uh, into considering what the scripture has to say about their identity and their value and their worth and regardless of what our culture is None of our cultures value us, place more worth upon us, place more purpose upon us than what the scriptures do. Uh, So one encouragement, this wasn't planned. Please, whether you are a follower of the Messiah this morning, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, please place weight on what the scriptures say about you. Consider who God says you are. I think you may be surprised if you listen to what the word says, especially compared to what culture says, society says, and honestly, a lot of times what guys like me say. We don't have a right just because we're up front. Look at the book. Believe the book. Um, With that said, uh, being in those relationships with those fellas and moving through those rhythms and through those seasons and asking those questions, something happens where we go beyond the program of Hip Hop 101. Uh, and, and somehow we become friends and we invite one another into each other's lives and we have experiences and we hang out and we go places, we walk and we talk, we introduce one another to each other's family and friends. Uh, and that is where effective ministry actually happens. The ministry is a word for work. Effective gospel work, effectively trying to love people and communicate the gospel happens best in relationships. So let's use programs. Let's use church. Let's use our money or our resources or our homes, but let's use those things to get into relationships because that's where the best stuff happens. Um, And with that said, on a sad note, unfortunately, that work is behind me. Impact Ministries was closed down a couple of months ago. So we're in a rebuilding season. We're we're trying to figure out what it looks like to continue and to prioritize that ministry that that I've been doing, that we've been doing, and to continue and prioritize the relationships um, that we have. We're in a rebuilding season. We're trying to centralize our lives. um, So y'all can be praying for us. And now, all of that said to say, that's just kind of one of the stories that I tell on the couch when I come into your living room, right? So now y'all know who I am a little bit. You know where I'm coming from. You know what I've been doing. Um, that's my story from the road. Now, I have a, uh, another story to tell you. Uh, that's a, a sermon this morning. And I have a two-part introduction to the actual sermon itself. And some of y'all are looking at each other like, get on with it, bro. Open the book. Come on. I know, but you got to build a foundation before you can build a house. Okay, so my introduction is two parts. Uh, here's the first part. Division, division runs the world. It makes the world go round. Uh, division fuels the vehicles of politics and business and religion alike. So it's the same, same fuel in, in the tank of those very different vehicles. And here are some really practical examples of division, just so you can put it in your hands and maybe put it in your pockets, understand it a little bit. In regards to, to business, what we support, what we purchase, what we consume, Mac or PC, Apple 
or Samsung? Capitalism or communism? Rap or rock? And obviously the answer is rap, right? (laughs) Rap or rock? Colts or Jaguars? Who do you guys think? Colts. Yeah, all right. Uh, Anybody a Cowboys fan? I hear there might just be one. Okay, there's a couple. He's he's convinced y'all. Okay. So that's a couple... uh, examples of division in regards to business. Uh, And when you think about division, think about groups or separation, right? And people become loyal to their thing. I'm an Apple and Mac dude all day long. I was talking with Jeff this week, going over the sermon, and I was reading through it on my iPad, and he said, well, I just write down notes. And I said, I can try that out because at one point it kind of reset and I was like, oh no, where am I going? So I'm praying that doesn't happen this morning. Uh, But I got home to write down notes and while I write raps, I realized that I really can't read what I write. So that would be all bad. I'm thankful for the iPad. I write letters a lot of times. Real deal. Here's a real deal story. I got a dear friend. Her name is Bree. She was getting married. I'd been married for a couple of years. So obviously I had immense jewels of wisdom to share with her, right? So I sit down at my little table and write her a letter about marriage and, you know, wish her the best and tell her that I love her. Uh, She sent it back with a little note in it. She said, I can't read anything. It's really sweet that you sent this letter. I can't read a word. Write it again. Okay. So business, right? Those, Those divisions, those groupings, those separations in regards to business. And then politics as well. Are you liberal or conservative, pro-life or pro-choice? Is marriage for one man and one woman or for any two people? Religion, uh, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, atheist, agnostic, spiritual, Christian, And as Christians, I can assume many of you are, or at least you are considering the claims of Christianity. I hope that I'm helpful for you this morning in that regard. Uh, In regards to Christian division, there's just this fascinating quote that sticks out in my mind, and we'll bring it up here on the screen. Think about this being written 60 years ago in regards to Christian division. It is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And it's only a few minutes after 10, so I'm sure that that doesn't apply to us, right? So 60 years ago, this is written, and it's still true. We live in our divisions. We love our divisions. We protect our divisions, and we fight for our divisions. Frankly, it's uncomfortable to get out of them. Now, with all of that said, that being true, and I hope that you can grab onto some of those examples and and they resonate with you, While that's true, none of us as individuals desire for our identities to be dictated or determined by those groupings, by those divisions, by those more collectives of of individuals. Do you guys agree with that? I mean, you know, I rap. I've rapped for a long time. When people say, oh, you're a rapper, I'm just like, oh. Because what I'm thinking about is the rapper's. On radio and on TV and in ads. And I'm like, oh gosh, no, I'm not that. But yeah, I'm a rapper. So we don't like to be, uh, our, our identity to be, to be determined or dictated by those larger groups. Yet and still, that's what we do. That's how we treat other people. It's almost automatically, again, are, you know, are you liberal or conservative? How do you vote? What do you think? Where do you live? Because that's how we can kind of comfortably box people in to these little categories and process that data, right? And then you don't have to be a living and dynamic and, and 
diverse person, you can just be those little data points and I can check you into my system. Um, And as we conclude uh, this thought, let's think about Evansville specifically. Again, I've been here just for a couple of years and I'm learning the Evansville-isms. So I'm not really native when I say this, but do you live on the east side or the west side? And yo, I mean, I'm, I'm from Cincinnati. It's, it's not that much bigger. If you were to stand up here, you would see the Evansville. I mean, it's kind of small, right? But it's like torn down the middle and people are chucking arrows and shooting guns. People on the east side hate the west side. The west. And it's kind of cute. I appreciate it. There's a culture to it, right? And we can get behind it. But like when you hang out with the homies and it gets kind of late and you had a couple drinks, that stuff can get really serious. People really kind of live on that east side, west side division. This side of 41 or that side of 41, north of Washington Avenue or south of Washington Avenue, USI or UE, Rockabar or Taroni's or the modern expression of that A-zip pizza or the pizza revolution, right? We live in our divisions. We love our divisions. Now, with division in mind, and what I'm trying to do is just build up that concept, that idea of division and how we operate that way, how we live in that almost automatically, but none of us really enjoy being divided or grouped or separated like that. So with division in mind, I'd like to introduce two different contexts, the religious context and the non-religious context. And hopefully these things are helpful. But if there's a characteristic underneath both of those headings, underneath the religious context would be self-righteous or self-righteousness. And under the non-religious context would be unrighteous or unrighteousness. And I'm not saying that I support uh, or subscribe to either of them or those characteristics of them. But I think if you're in the non-religious camp and you look over at the religious camp, what you see is self-righteousness. People looking down their noses and going, tisk tisk. And now if you're in the religious camp and you look over at the non-religious camp, I think what you see is unrighteousness. So I'm not saying I subscribe to either or I support those notions, but as I've lived in the world, as I read the book, that sure seems how they could be described or defined. So moving forward, that's how I'm going to use those words, self-righteous and unrighteous, religious and non-religious, in regards to how each other sees one another. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay, don't be afraid to use your voice in church. Now... Today, and I'll be back next Sunday to to finish this up and to kind of unpack a a, a parallel concept. Uh, What I'm looking at is the equal invitation of the gospel. That is for both groups. It's for both parties. And we'll see that the gospel is no respecter of either of those groups or of either of those divisions in that The gospel does not reward or merit self-righteous religious people. And the gospel does not take away a reward, keep a reward from demerit or punish non-religious, unrighteous people. Religion does that. The systems that we make up and live in and operate in and put badges on our chest and check the mark, they, they do that. But the gospel does not... Do that. Simply, the gospel does not smile upon the religious 
or the self-righteous, and the gospel does not frown upon the unrighteous. Rather, there's an equal invitation of the gospel to both parties, and that's good news. That is good news, because while none of us want to be categorized or divided or grouped or separated off, apart from believing in the gospel, here's kind of the two groups, apart from believing in the gospel, all of us, myself first, are unrighteous. And then within the all of us group, some of us are self-righteous. Any questions before we proceed? And I mean that sincerely. Again, you got to build a foundation before you build a house. No, don't be afraid. Yeah, man. Sure, that's a good question. Um, what did I mean by no merit or reward? Um, by being a, a, a self-righteous or religious person, God does not merit you heaven. He doesn't merit you eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift by believing. Now, I do believe in eternal rewards. Maybe we'll grab a cup of coffee and talk about that later. But the gospel um, is, a, is an equal invitation for all people to believe and by believing to receive the gift of eternal life. Let's talk about that later. That's a great question. This is the danger when you ask questions. Go ahead. People take you up on it. Sure. Yeah. People believe a host of things, and that is okay, and it's our job to enter into relationships with people if you're a believer in the Christ and to love her and to share the truth with her. That's great. Yeah, love her. Point her to the truth. Any other questions? Great. Seriously, we'll talk. We'll get a cup of coffee. You're buying, though. All right. <laughs> Okay, so now this is my sermon introduction. This is part two. It's much more brief than part one. And I just want to kind of weave my way into where you guys have been. Over the past few months, Jeff has suggested that the last place that you would expect to find the gospel is in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Exodus. And that's because of your familiarity with the gospel. That's why you would think the last place you would find it would be in the Old Testament, And you can be familiar whether you've read the scriptures yourself or whether you've come to church or whether you grew up in a Christian culture or near to a Christian subculture. That can all create familiarity. And again, while while that is true, the the last place that we would expect to find the gospel is in the Old Testament. What Jeff has done a, a great job of, and he didn't pay me to say this. What, what he's done a great job of is pointing out gospel truths in the Old Testament, both uh, overt and obvious. They're, they're there subtly and they're there obviously. So this morning I'm piggybacking onto the series that you've been in, the gospel, in the last place you would expect to find it. And we'll be exploring the equal invitation of the gospel first to my people over here, the unrighteous and the non-religious. So, to do so, we're finally there, ladies and gentlemen. Intro, personal, sermon intro, and one and two are both finished. We're finally to the main point. So, get out your Bibles, open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Uh, We'll be looking at 
the first part of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Uh, and, and again, I think the context is, oh, it's so, so important. So, two notes before we get to the text specifically. One note about John himself. John is the author of what we'll be reading this morning. And then one idea on the actual um, account, the Gospel account, the letter itself that we're reading from. Uh, so, John chapter 20, verse 1 through 8, to me is... So telling of the man who wrote this text that we're going to look at. You don't have to go to John 20 verses 1 through 8. I'll read it. You can camp on John 2 and I'll be back there in a second. This is about John. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. Listen to this. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter came following him and went to the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there in the face cloth, which has been on Jesus' head. It wasn't lying there. It was in a different place. And then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and he believed. And you guys are like, all right, so that other disciple was fast. He, he got to the tomb first. But what I want you to see, what I want you to note as we con- consider the text and consider who it's coming from, we have to see John, the author's humanity. We have to see his person. As he's accounting, I mean, shoot, this, as he is accounting for the resurrection of a human being from the dead, right? That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about fresh donuts at Krispy Kreme. He's talking about a really important, substantial thing. As he's talking about the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah, the man, the one who, who have been waiting for thousands of years for, he can't get away from his own life. He's talking about the life of the Christ, the resurrected Messiah, and still at the same time, he's like, yeah, you better believe that I outran Peter. I got down there first. Right? And that sounds like us. That sounds like me. I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've been following Jesus for 11 years now. But a lot of my days, I can't get away from Sean. I can't get away from my life and my pride and my ego and my objectives and my accolades and what I'm claiming that I did that's awesome that I want everyone to know about. And the gospel writer, John, is the exact same way. Now, I love John because in part he gave me a lens to see a relationship with Jesus. On one side of the coin, he says, I am the disciple that Jesus loved. And I think that there is a word for all of us this morning. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Hmm. And then the other side of the coin, excuse me as I get emotional, the other side of the coin is like, yeah, Jesus loves me. I'm that disciple. Peter isn't that disciple. I'm that dude. Jesus loves me. Immense humanity that we can all relate to in the person who's writing this book because 
You can't get away from your humanity. So the people who wrote the book are not different than you and I. They're no different. We come here this morning with immense complication, uh, shortcomings, and debts, and errors, and fights, and harsh words, and sin, and intentional evil, right? We bring that with us. How many people, you ain't got to raise your hand. Wives, give your husband one time. How many people got in a fight on the way here, right? I mean, for y'all are laughing because it's true. That's the predicament. That's the same people who wrote these books. They're human. And if we treat the holy book, the sacred text, as if it is not human, we can never access it in a way that it desires to infiltrate and influence our lives. It's immeasurably important to understand that the people who wrote the books in here are human beings to every detail, just as you and I are. And a brief word, much more brief than that, about... The gospel itself, the account itself. John chapter 20, just a few verses later after that description. Verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written. That John whom Jesus loved and outran Peter accounted for these things. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life. That is God's desire for all of us this morning, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And now, believing does not mean that you have all of your questions answered. And I hope you don't think that. I I continue to have uh, unanswered questions and things that I struggle with, but the gospel is good news and it's equal invitation to both because God desires for us to believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and receive the gift of eternal life. And that is all that you have to do to receive that gift is to believe. So that's John. That's his objective. He has written these things so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing have life. That's my objective. That's the objective of City Church. Um, And I hope that you guys believe. Okay, read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. We'll read it one time and then we'll kind of unpack it. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed him. And in the Gospel of John, that's the first time that his disciples believe him, that belief that I talked about just a moment ago. So we'll look at verse 1 and 2 first. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we start off with a when. It's the third day. 
It's a continuation of the end of chapter 1. There is continuity in the text. It's the third day. So you'll find the second and the first day a little bit back in chapter 1. And then we have a what. What is, what, what, what's the what? Yeah, for sure. Good job. It's a wedding. Uh, and just like today, a wedding was and is a party, a celebration. It's a big deal. But unlike today, weddings were the fulfillment of a much longer and much more serious than in our current culture and day, betrothal or agreement or pledge, what we have kind of shrunk down nowadays and we call an engagement. So a wedding was an expression of something much more serious, a betrothal, a pledge, an agreement, but we call it an engagement. So for example, of the seriousness of, of the betrothal period before the wedding, if a man slept with a woman who was betrothed to another man, both of them were subject to the death penalty. Right? So that's the weight that they brought into their weddings and into uh, the betrothal season. And then for additional help in understanding these kind of wedding celebrations, I'm going to read an excerpt from the Holman Bible Dictionary. And now, there are a lot of folk who have been married. So as we talk about uh, a bride and a groom, think about you on your wedding day being treated in this way. Okay? And then for those of you who have this rose-colored lens idea on marriage. I'm going to kind of puff that up a little bit. Think about how wonderful this would be. The wedding ceremony began with the groom bringing home the bride from her parents' house to his parents' house. The groom, accompanied by his friends, right, all of his stinky, annoying, won't stop calling him and asking him to come and play halo friends. They're singing and they're playing music. And they led a pro- procession through the streets to the town, to the bride's home. Along the way, friends who were ready and waiting with lamps lit would join in the procession. Veiled and dressed in beautifully embroidered clothes and adorned with jewels, the bride, accompanied by her attendants, joined the groom for the procession to the father's house. Isaiah 61.10 describes the groom decked out with garland. Isn't that fresh? Fellas, you put a big... Like garland piece around your neck. Think about it this week as you think about what am I going to wear? I got an important date or a meeting. Try it on. A garland around the neck. So the, the, the groom had garland. And the bride was adorned with jewels. And the bride's beauty would be forever remembered. The bride and groom were considered king and queen for the week. Sometimes the groom even wore a gold crown. That's the second little thing you want to put on this week. Garland and a gold crown. And then once they got to the home, the couple sat under a canopy amid the festivities of games and dancing, which lasted an entire week and sometimes longer. Guests praised the newly married couple, songs of love for the couple, graced the festival, sumptuous meals and wine filled the home and the banquet hall. Ample provisions for an elaborate feast was essential. Failure could bring a lawsuit. The couple wore their wedding clothes throughout the week. My wife and I went to a wedding about a month ago. I was a young life leader in Cincinnati, Ohio. One of my old young life boys got married to a beautiful gal. And it was just so much fun. Uh, open bar, free, all night long. The drinks were great. The food was great. There was all kinds of people there. We caught up hugs, love, kisses. But at the end of the night, when it's time to go, it is time to go, right? Regardless of how much we enjoyed it. And this celebration that we're about to step into lasted a week. Or longer. So when it's time to go, it's actually only time to go get a nap. 
because y'all are partying tomorrow. And then after that, you know, about six or seven or ten more times. So we have a a when and we have a what and we understand a little bit about the what of the wedding. And now we have a who. Who's there? Jesus' mother, his disciples, and Jesus himself. And just like today, you don't invite anyone to a wedding who you don't like unless they're family. Right? And now, we understand that... I'm, I'm so glad you guys laughed at that. I gotta say, <laughs> real quick, I am so bad at calculated jokes. Like, when you put it in there, it's always just... It's a bomb, but I'm, I'm glad that you laughed at that. That helps me out up here. Um... So, while we're told uh, that Jesus is there with his family, namely his mother, and he's also with his disciples, there's no inclination that Jesus or his mom are kin to these people, right? So they didn't invite him out of obligation. Well, we got to invite Aunt Mary and her little punk son, Jesus, right? There wasn't any of that. So we can assume, and it is an assumption, we can assume that these people actually liked Jesus and they liked Mary, And they liked the knuckleheads that Jesus rolled with, his disciples, right? They liked them. And how'd they get there? The how is an invitation, right? They were invited to come. An invitation represents relationship. It represents intimacy. Jesus was invited to this celebration, to this party. And I think it's safe to assume that Jesus was a good time. Is that a risky idea this morning? Do we think about Jesus as someone we would want to invite to a party because he's a good time? Yeah, my man. Uh, So he was invited to the celebration. He was invited to the party. It's safe to assume he was a good time. Scripture gives us no indication that he was a Debbie Downer, that he was interested in raining on people's parades. The narrative of Jesus is so attractive in part, not entirely, but in part because he was celebrated and received and pursued by such a dynamic group of people, men and women alike, the wealthy and the impoverished, the social elite and the social outcast, the religious and the non-religious, the self-righteous and the unrighteous all pursued Jesus. And when he was invited, he showed up. That is a big, big deal. When he was invited, he showed up. Jesus went to to parties. And he celebrated normal and natural things in normal and natural ways. Kind of an example of that. I wonder if he had a little bit of cash in his pocket or coin. And when it was time for the dollar dance, he went up and pinned some cash on the, on the bride's crown, or maybe he put it in the guy's crown or on his little garland necklace, right? Celebrating normal and natural things in normal and natural ways. As a follower of Jesus, I long to be in the relationships that Jesus was in, intimate and intentional and insignificant relationships with people who are not like me. And that is not an easy thing. People who are not socioeconomically like me, who make less money, And have less education. People who are not politically like me. Who don't vote the same way. Don't support the same cause. People who are not ethnically like me. Who support different holidays. And have different culture. People who are not theologically like me. Who just fundamentally disagree with what is primary to me. And also people who agree with the primary stuff. But then disagree with the peripheral stuff. Right? And for the Christians that's where we all live. Why can't we all just get along? Let's just get around the primary stuff and go 
have a drink over the peripheral stuff and afterwards give each other a hug and a love and a slap on the butt. Let's get back to the primary stuff. Let's live there. So Jesus and his followers were invited and they attended and they contributed to the party. And that has got to weigh on our conscience about who Jesus is, about who God is. And as followers of Jesus, as considerers of Jesus, who we can be and who we should be. As a follower of Jesus, let's think about this real quick. What would it look like to be in intimate and intentional and significant relationship with people unlike you? Dream it out. What would it look like to receive invitations to their celebrations? And some of y'all are like, I've been ducking those celebrations for about 25 years now. And I got a meeting on Wednesday night at 7 because I can't celebrate there. But what would it be like to receive celebration invitations um, into their special occasions, their intimate gatherings? And when you're invited not only to attend and sit like a, how's that saying go, a lump on a log? Right, sit with your back up against the wall, smug like a middle schooler who's afraid to dance. Right? When you go to not only attend, but to contribute to the party. And then when they invite you and you show up and you contribute, they celebrate your contribution to their party. That is what Jesus did. That is what God embodied did. That is a heavy thought. And when we do that, we're giving people a glimpse of this beautiful Jesus and a glimpse of this scandalous gospel. Interestingly, just a thought, self-righteous people often make a really big deal of non-religious contexts, right? So I didn't grow up in church. We didn't flip pages of the Bibles. I didn't know, yes, Jesus loves me. I didn't know the songs. I didn't know the stories, the tales, the veggie tales. That show's kind of creepy, even if y'all love it. Vegetables talking. We're vegetarians. We love us some vegetables. Well, why is it? Okay. Why is it vegetables? That's just weird to me. Anyway, so I've had to learn the culture, right? And I've had to learn, like, the behaviors and the denominational differences. And I, if I had to take a driver's test to, to pass on Christian culturalisms, I would ride the bus forever. It's too much. I don't get it. But one thing that I have learned is about these few phrases. Uh, in the world, of the world, worldly, or secular. Now, this is a generalization, and, and give me some grace on where generalizations fall short. But what people are talking about when they talk about that stuff, in the world, of the world, secular, they're talking about things they don't control. The Christians are referring to things that they don't control when they throw that label on it, aren't they? Well, that's in the world, that's of the world, that's secular. And they can be talking about anything. Anything. They can talk about school. They can talk about bars. They can talk about clubs or restaurants, coffee shops, shopping malls, and certainly parties. And here we see Jesus in the thick of not only the celebration, but the activity. Here's a question I want you to consider. For Jesus, what do you think was a bigger leap? What do you think was a bigger divide? Walking from his house with Mary and his disciples to where the wedding was, or leaving eternity to enter time, leaving glory to enter brokenness, 
leaving this eternally uninterrupted fellowship he had had with his father and with the spirit and taking on flesh, being encapsulated by a person. What do you think was a bigger step for him, a bigger deal? We have to separate this notion of secular and sacred because when Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. When the scripture says that, it is not lying. All have been made for Jesus, through Jesus, everything. And especially, most likely, the things that we don't control. So, Jesus enters time. He enters earth. He enters a human body. And that is the great divide. See, Jesus can live so liberally as he does. Uh, John was one way, and Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard because he didn't abstain from drink. Uh, he, he, he could live so liberally because the big divide, the big jump had already happened when he left eternity to enter time, when he left the fellowship of his father, when he left glory to enter into brokenness. So he can live liberally with people and love people who are unlike him because it's like, I already did the thing that mattered. I already did the big deal. And in that, sacred and secular was demolished. We are the ones who, who continue it, but it does not Exist, And you can argue me on that over lunch if you're buying. Verse 3 to 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Mary's expectation was that Jesus not only could do something about it, but that he would do something about it. Her request indicates that she must have known that Jesus cared for people. Even in really, really practical ways, they're out of wine, Jesus, do something about it. And she must have known that Jesus would obey her. Because it doesn't sound like from the text that Jesus planned to act or behave in the way that his mother expected. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And a lot of people throw shade at that woman because we filter it into our culture. and We think that he's like snapping on her, being disrespectful. That's a, that's a ma'am in the original ma'am. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let me say this in a different way. God did not plan to act or behave in a way that a human Expected. Mary had an expectation. Jesus had a different expectation. Nonetheless, God acted and God behaved because a human asked. Appeal to God. Ask God to act on your behalf in very practical ways. He is an accessible God. He is a loving God. He is concerned for you and your really finite, silly, in your mind, concerns. I was trying to think of an example in my life that I could use to represent something like that, right? Because I'm the preacher man, so I only have serious prayer requests, right? And I only have real intense preacher requests. Um, my wife and I lived on First Street a couple of years ago, and I love, love, love. Jeff might get in trouble for this. I love dirty rap music. I love gangster rap music. I love raps. I love them. And my CD was stuck in the CD player. And I had not been able to get it to play or get it out of my CD player for like, it felt like weeks. I'm sure it was just an afternoon, but it was a really long time and I couldn't get it out. I went inside, I came back outside, started the car, couldn't get it to play, couldn't get it out. 
And I just paused and I was like, God, I want to listen to these dirty raps. Please make something happen with this CD. I hit eject, the CD came out. I was like, dude, praise God, thank you, because he loves us. He is concerned for us. Do we think about God like that? Do we appeal to him for mundane, normal, regular stuff? I tell you that that sticks out as an example because that was a real need. It was a primary need. It was a concern of mine. This high, top shelf, super spiritualized stuff. I don't know what those prayers are. I asked God to get a CD out of my out of my head deck, and he did. I asked God in that video when I was 19 to, to show me that he was real, and he did that. Do we know that God wants to show himself to us? I'm not saying that he hasn't shown himself to us fully in the text and in creation. I'm not arguing sound theology. God is concerned for you. He wants to show himself to you. Appeal to him. Ask of him. When Jesus pushed back, right? What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Still, Mary says, do whatever he tells you. Mary had an expectation in the face of God's resistance. And that expectation was obedience, which makes me wonder about the relationship that Jesus and Mary had had for the three decades prior to this little picture that we see. How many requests had Mary made of Jesus over that time? And it's kind of weird to think about because it's superhuman and Mary is Jesus's mother. But what could some of those requests have been? If we have any kids, we know the kind of requests that mom be giving y'all. We know what she says when she's tired in the bed. She got her feet up. She doesn't want to do it. And mothers, you know, as soon as your child had a conscious, you were like, cha-ching, because I can tell them what to do. Maybe I'm wrong. We don't have kids. I'm sure felt like that at home. Uh, so some of the examples possibly that Mary had requested of Jesus. Jesus cleared the table. Jesus Take out the trash. Jesus, run to the store. And that's funny because that dude really had to run. (laughs) Why no cars? He actually had to run to the store. Jesus, do the dishes. Jesus, they have no wine. They ran out of wine. That's the line, the vein that I I sense this is in. Um, Does anyone watch House of Cards? By chance, you can raise your hand if you do. I know we're in church. All right. So, and this might be a terrible example. Forgive me. Give me some grace. But what I see in this, what I sense in this, especially is Mary makes the request and Jesus pushes back on it. And then she says, well, do, you know, do whatever he tells you. Jesus is Mary's Doug Stamper, right? Frank Underwood is one of the main characters in House of Cards, real powerful uh, politician. He's got this right hand man. I mean, if Frank asks, then Doug acts. And that's the same thing that we're seeing. Mary asks, Jesus is like, it's not my time, it's not, do it anyway. Jesus acts. And while we know that the scriptures claim that Jesus speaks the truth, he says, I am the truth. He's talking to Pontius Pilate and he says, anyone who listens to truth is on my side. He claims to speak the truth, but here in his response, we're going to see him show the truth. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And of course, the law Jesus is speaking of is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And one of the commandments found in Exodus twenty twelve is honor your father and mother. I know how Jesus honored his mother, Mary, and his father, in heaven. He honors his mother's request and he honors his father's requirement, which is to fulfill 
the law, to be obedient, honor your parents. And what we see here is the equal invitation of the gospel, even in this unrighteous, non-religious context and circumstance. We see Jesus acting in a way that he fulfills the law. He obeys what his mother says so that he can fulfill God's holy law and ultimately offer the equal invitation of the gospel. And then we have verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And Jesus had dealt with these rites of purification in another gospel. And I'm not sure if you'll remember this account, but Jesus comes in from the market with his disciples, and he's joined by some Pharisees. And the Pharisees, I mean, they're like, you know, they're cowards. They're probably underneath their breath. They're like, hold on a second. These dudes did not even wash their hands. What is a Pharisee's name? I don't know. Pharisee A. Did you see that this dude didn't wash his hands? Pharisee C. Yeah, I saw that. Anyway, so they they come in from the street, from the market. It's like Walmart. I can dig why you would want to wash your hands. I get it. When I'm at Walmart, I come home, I want to wash my hands. But they come in. They hadn't washed their hands. The Pharisees start to push back on it. And they say, "Why, why are your disciples not upholding the law? Why are they not washing their hands? These rites of purification, trying to be clean. And Jesus ends up telling them, that they're hypocrites, that they honor God with their lips, but that their hearts are far from him, that they worship God in vain, that they teach the doctrine of man and the commands of man as if it is the law of God, and that they have abandoned the commands of God in place of these teachings of men. What a burden to be yoked with the weight of purity and the inescapable reality of failure. Think about the literal burden of moving six 20 to 30-gallon stone water jars. I mean, think about the weight of it, picking it up, having to move it, not drop it. They didn't have plastic, right? I mentioned that my wife opened up a business on Main Street, Sunshine Juice Co., and kind of throughout the week, I'm playing helping hand, right? And it's like, Aaron, I love you, and I support your business immensely. But if I need to pick up produce today, could you just give me like an hour heads up, maybe a two hour heads up? And she'll, you know, her and Megan will call me like, hey, that produce is ready. And they need that produce now to uh, juice it. But anyway, their, their business is on the second floor of the Bitterman Mini Shops. It's on Main Street. So I go and I pick up the produce from the River City Food Co-op. And usually it depends what day of the week it is. It's kind of like these stacks of heavy produce, right? So I'll take two boxes at a time. I haven't been doing push-ups in a while, so I can't get a lot of the boxes. So I'll grab two in and out, grab another two boxes, fill the scion up, drive over to the Bitterman, and I hope that I can park illegally up front because if I can't, then I have to park around back and then I have to carry the boxes trip at a time, a couple, like another block rather than parking temporarily illegally with the flashers on. And then I go inside, open the door, carry up two boxes, come back down, grab a couple other boxes, go back up, down, up, down. And then once the produce is delivered, I take some of their juice uh, and I load the car up again to go deliver it. It's, it's heavy stuff. It's weighty stuff. The rhythm of it, the cycle of it, knowing that I have to do it in a couple more days. It just makes my thighs and my legs and my calves burn. There's a burden to it. Right, and, and part of the weight of the burden is knowing that it is not going to stop. They have another produce order in a couple of days. 
I can only imagine that that's just a small picture of what that burden, what that weight of these Jewish rites of purification must have been like. Because the produce couldn't have weighed as much as those jars did. And when Jesus acts, he doesn't have the water jars demolished. He has them filled. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he has the water turned wine, taken to the master of the feast. And I have a picture on this because my wife was an event planner for a while at event gallery here downtown. And she would labor on these events for months, right? The master of the feast. She would labor on them for months. So dealing with bridezillas and dealing with, you know, aunts and mamas and cousins. Everybody's got an opinion. And then after months of laboring... came the day for the feast. And my wife is the master of this feast. And I would sneak in during the event. In part, it's because I thought she looked really good in a cocktail dress. And because she was gone, there wasn't dinner at home, so I could probably sneak a free meal. And then also, I just thought it was fascinating to watch her as the master of this feast. Because when you go to a party, when you go to a wedding, when you go to a celebration, you're just thinking about having a good time. You're not thinking about where the drink comes from or where the food comes from or where the music comes from. You're just in the moment, right? But Aaron was was responsible for the fuel and all of that machinery. So if she was the master of the feast and her employees were the servants, her employees told her about every detail of that feast about the party she knew about all of it i can only imagine that the master of the feast knew that they were running out of wine the servants had to have told him i can only imagine that he knew that they had run out of wine completely he had worked with these people for months he had planned on it gone over budgets what kind of drink what kind of food and how humiliating it must have been for the groom, for the groom's parents, for the bride, consequentially, and the bride's family to run out of the main staple, the main drink. After a betrothal of more than a year, the planning, the preparing, the paying, the wedding celebration is finally happening, the party's in progress, and the wine ran out, even with all of their planning and all of their paying and all of their preparation. And that is a picture of our inefficiency, our inability to be perfect. The variables of humanity rob us from it time and again. And I don't know if you caught me saying this earlier, but the failure of ample provision for wedding celebration could bring a lawsuit. Isn't that a trip? It could bring a lawsuit. So not only are they approaching this relational discomfort, right? You dropped the ball on day one of being responsible for holding it. You dropped it. But they're approaching legal action as well. So not only is it relationships disturbed, but legal action is approaching. And get this. I think this is the the, the biggest principle that I could say out of this whole entire portion of the text. Jesus turns the source of condemnation into the source of celebration. Write that down, take a picture, put it on a postcard, scribble it on your hand. What Jesus does is turn the source of condemnation into the source of celebration, and that is not only for them. That is the case for every single one of us. In our best efforts as a religious person, or in our worst failings as a non-religious person, we all fall short of God's glory. And there's a day coming, and we will be held to account 
like a courtroom. There will be legal action against us. And where will our righteousness come from? And if you are looking to yourself, you will come up short. And if you ain't looking at all because you don't think stuff's true or you don't care about it, you also will come up short. The source of our condemnation, namely the holiness of God, his judgment seat, Jesus has made into the source of celebration. Because on that old rugged cross, he paid the debt that we owe. And we can look to the source of condemnation, namely judgment. For our sin, for our shortcoming, our error, our humanity. And we can celebrate. City Church has this phrase, this changes everything. And of course the T and the this is the cross. And think about that. That our source of condemnation has been turned into a source of celebration. And that is not for one group of people. It's not only for the people who vote pro-life, and it's not only for the people who vote pro-choice, and it's not only the people with a certain socioeconomic or educational status, it's for the other people. It's for both sides of the divide, and because of the text, first it is for the unrighteous in a non-religious context. And we're approaching the end here, but we're looking at verse 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus made that happen. Jesus did the work. He filled the gap. He covered over the error, yet he did not seek the praise. And he's like, hold up. Groom? No, that's me. Master of the feast, me over here. I'm the one with the red stained hands. I made the water into wine. The glory, the praise was rightfully Jesus's. It belonged to him. And the last person who should have been praised was the person who made the mistake, the groom. But Jesus didn't seek the praise. He didn't seek the glory. He actually gave it to, directed it towards, accredited accredited it to the one who had the deficit. And that is what Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon coming return does to us. He credits us with his righteousness by believing. And we can tell that the master of the feast knew that the groom was responsible, right? Because he praised him for it. So in the same way that he praised him for the good wine, he would have held him accountable for the lack of wine. The the master of the feast knew who was responsible for it, but Jesus allowed him to receive the praise and to receive the glory. Don't you know that Jesus wants you to stand before God and to be praised? Do you know that? That the life and the death and the resurrection, the ascension, the soon coming return of Jesus is because Jesus wants to present you like his spotless bride beautifully and without error. We know how unbeautiful we are. We know how many errors we have. But Jesus wants to present you to the judge, to the master, to the one who can cast judgment as spotless, as blemishless, as pure. Believe on him. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> one, one picture that I have to illustrate this. So this was his first sign. I mean, think if you were God, right, and you were living a life, what would you come out the gate with? Wouldn't you come out with like a home run? Right? Wouldn't you, I mean, a touchdown pass, I would call, I would do a press release, Right? 
I mentioned that I've been rapping for 15 years, and I've seen this in the, in the hip-hop program that I directed in my own life and in the lives of the rappers that I know. I mean, we'll labor over work, right? We write a bunch of raps, and we go home, we scratch it out, and we rap in front of the mirror just to make sure that's super dope, right? That's what we do. And then when it comes time to release a project, to share our glory, to present our work to the world, the last thing that any of us rappers or any of you humans are going to do is take your name off of the product. You're not going to duck into the shadows after you've labored to share your glory with the world. For rappers, we're going to have a marketing strategy and a rollout plan. We're going to have music samples and email blasts. We're going to get social media buzz, put the hashtags up in the pictures and create a contest because we want the glory for our work. And while Jesus is entirely human, just like us, he is so unhuman in that way. He does not seek thirstily after the glory and the approval of men because he knows what is in a man. There's a rapper, this just came to my mind. Her name is Lauren Hill. Does anyone know who Lauren Hill is? She sang with the Fugees, just a a beautiful voice, a beautiful mind. Uh, She said, you think that you are a superstar. You are stupid star. They will hail you and then they will nail you. It doesn't matter who you are. Don't labor for the glory of men. They will hail you and then they will nail you. If they did it to the Christ, they will do it to someone less than the Christ. And all of us are less than the Christ. The equal invitation of the gospel, first to the unrighteous in a non-religious context at the party with the error of these people. Next week, we will look at the self-righteous people in a very religious context. I want to share one more verse and I'm going to pray. I thank you guys for listening and for asking questions. So the equal invitation of the gospel, uh, Matthew 11:28 through 30. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This isn't just good literature. It's not just pretty poetry. This is an invitation of a man who is also a God and a God who also became a man so he could invite all of us. Neither only one side of the divide. All of us. We got a lot going on in this season. Selling houses, buying houses, starting new businesses, trying to make ministry happen. We are worn out. We're tired. And I'll sit with my wife at the end of long days... And she would just be so worn out. Um, And the only thing that I can tell her after trying to help is to find rest. The rest is for all of us. Um, The rest is for all of us. The invitation is equal. Um, respond to the invitation. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you that you are good and you are oh so different than we expect. You're not only after uh, 
people who are on this side of the divide and you are not only after people who are on that side of the divide. The, the gospel is the great equalizer. Um, and you call out from all of history uh, with a work that is complete uh, for our sake. That we would believe and receive the fruit of that labor. Uh, Jesus, I thank you for the beauty of your life. Um, and that the gospel, the good news comes out of the life that you lived. Uh, you are not a hypocrite. You are no different in real life than you are in public life. Lord Jesus, thank you for your work. Thank you for your invitation. Thank you for the rest that all of us can find for our weary and our burdened souls, all alike. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you show Sean uh, here? Yeshers is going to come up. Yeshers is going to come up. They're going to take the offering, and uh, the band's going to play. And then after we take the offering, uh, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. Ushers, go ahead and take the offering. As a reminder, as you leave today, um, if you would, go, if you would go ahead, please stand. As you leave today, when you walk out, um, out there is what we call City Square. If you're new to our church, and if you'd like to sign up to be a part of one of the projects that we talked about earlier, especially the uh, Clean Evansville Initiative, there's going to be some people standing out there at the square, and uh, they'll be taking names. So please sign up to be a part of that this next Saturday from nine to eleven. Excuse me, I'm sorry. It's December the 6th from 9 to 11, and we'd love to have you sign up and be a part of that project. I want to thank you so much for coming this morning. I'm going to say a word of prayer as we close. Lord Jesus Christ, we celebrate and exalt your name, and we are so grateful for the equal invitation of the gospel. Lord, there's not a person here in this room that is righteous in and of themselves. No matter how self-righteous we may think uh, that we can be, no matter how much we may trust in our own goodness, no matter how much we may trust in the things that we haven't done or the things that we have done, there is no righteousness in any human being, only in you, Lord Jesus Christ. And then for those that are here this morning that may feel like, man, I'm, I'm so not righteous. I have, man, there's so many things in my past. I've got so much baggage in my life. Lord, I pray that that they would recognize that there is no one so unrighteous that the Lord Jesus Christ would not die for them. So, Lord, at the foot of the cross, all of us stand. Every single one of us stand here. And 
we acknowledge you, Lord Jesus Christ. We worship and we celebrate you. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship and pray. Amen. Thank you.